1976, Ian McEwan's first collection of short stories, First Love, Last Rites, won the Somerset Mom Award. His first novel, The Cement Garden, was published two years later. He won the Booker Prize in 1998 with Amsterdam. He was awarded the CBE, the Commander of the Order of the British Empire, in the 2000 Queen's Millennium Honours List for his services to literature. His novels, Atonement on Chesil Beach, Enduring Love and the Children Act, have been made into films, among others. His new book, Machines Like Me, is in bookstores right now. Nice to have you. Thank Welcome. you. Welcome. I'm told that you once kind of eyed, uh, and I, I ask you this because we're on the radio, that you once sort of eyed a, a, a career opportunity in radio. Well, I was uh, 12 years old, <laughs> a bit early for a career, I guess. But I was fascinated by uh, electronics mm -hmm. at that age, and the physics teacher used to run a wiring club. And under his instruction, I wired together little bits of wire and resistors and was fascinated by the beautiful colors. And uh, it never worked. <laughs> <laughs> I never got a peep out of it. Oh, now, see, uh, how I understood it was that you aspired to a career on the air. And I thought this makes perfect sense. Radio and writing have several things in common. Solitary. It's generally speaking one person and one microphone speaking to a large number of people who you don't see, and you paint pictures with words. And I thought, well, this is perfect. This is uh, this led to him being a writer. Well, I think we live in an era of fake news. I never aspired to be on the radio, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, my that was my only brush. Actually, I did work for the BBC mm -hmm. uh, after I left school and before university. I worked in maybe the dullest job imaginable, which was in the days before the internet, uh, in, a, in a press filing office. Oh, Be and, and they would file everything, right? Well, I had to cut up the day's newspapers mm -hmm. and, uh, and file them, but always on the desks behind us were all the returns, which were almost piled to the ceiling. <laughs> no one could ever get behind it. It was like some story out of Kafka. That's right. It, or yeah, just pushing that rock up the hill the yeah. next day. Yeah, uh, so 10 days later, I gave in my notice. I just couldn't <laughs> face it. Children play a significant role in, in much of your work. We're going to talk about machines like me uh, in depth shortly, but I want to sort of set the stage for people here. Um, what was your childhood like? Well, my father was a soldier, so mm -hmm. we traveled a lot. Um, I grew up uh, partially in Singapore between the ages of three and six, and then uh, for the next six years in North Africa, in Libya, in Tripoli. Uh, I remember it as something of a childhood idyll. The yeah. weather was always beautiful, and there was uh, school started very early in the morning to avoid the heat. And uh, down to the beach after lunch for nine months of the year. <laughs> so. Uh, at the age of 11, I was cast out of Eden because there was no secondary school, mm -hmm. and I was uh, sent off to a, a boarding school 2,000 miles away back in Britain. That must have been a shock. It was a shock. Uh, it was so much of a shock that I hardly realized it. I sort of folded into myself for three or four years, right. and then I kind of woke up about the age of 16 and realized that uh, this was an incredibly beautiful location on the banks of the River Orwell in, on the borders of Suffolk and Essex. And also I came awake intellectually. I was suddenly thrilled by the idea of poetry and novels and music, rock and roll, as well as classical and blues and jazz. And suddenly those friendships become more important. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the intensity of life for me at this school between the, six, the ages of 16 and, and 18 
were really formative because I was one of those, I am one of those writers with a, an English teacher at my back. I also had a physics teacher at my back too who was very keen for me to press on with science. Was that of interest to you in any way? Absolutely. I was very, very torn. And the English educational system really demanded you make a choice at the age of 16 between these things to specialize in one or the other. A very unfortunate choice, Mm -hmm. I think. But I chose English. The teacher was, I guess, a little more charismatic. (laughs) Uh, And by the time I left school at the age of 18, I was absolutely thrilled by the idea of literature as a reader and a, uh, a critic rather than a an author. But it was formative for me those those couple of years. Was the idea of ever being an author, did it seem unattainable? Did it seem like something that other people did and, and you were lucky to be able to go pick up their books in the bookstore? At first it did. Yeah. Um, I was a passionate reader and uh, like most writers, I think that's how we begin yeah. as readers. And then you begin to realize that literature is a is a conversation down through the centuries, and it's a conversation anyone can join, and you don't require any money or backing. All you need is a pencil and a a legal pad. So I started writing in my second year at university, and by the time, a couple of years later, I was already writing stories that were published. So Mm -hmm. my first stories were published in 1970, when I was 21. And I never really looked back. It was a time of, uh, you know, looking back at that, particular period when a lot of us were sort of pushing against the idea of a nine to five job Mm -hmm. for the rest of our lives. And I saw my route out of having to work in an office. So yes, uh, a bit of traveling followed. But when I got back to England from uh, crossing Afghanistan several times, I longed for cool gray skies and, um, (laughs) and a whitewash room, humble whitewash room to work in. I'm speaking with Ian McEwen. His new novel is called Machines Like Me. Do you think had those first couple of short stories not been printed, had been rejected, had had uh, come back with uh, the very polite letters that they used to send, you know, it's not what we're looking for at yes. this time. Thank you for your submission. That you would have continued writing and, and thought of it as a potential career? I think I would have pressed on for a while, but I think also that my fallback would have been journalism. Mm-hmm. And I did all through the 70s to support my writing. I worked, did sort of magazine articles and, and a bit of reviewing, uh, Times Literary Supplement, The Observer and so on. But I was very, very lucky that uh, I had gone to the University of East Anglia Creative writing was not something that got taught in British universities, Mm -hmm. and they had offered a very timid little start to this (laughs) whole industry where I could um, basically go through an ordinary literature MA in comparative literature, in fact. Uh, But one-twelfth of the whole thing, I could hand in a little bit of my own writing. And two novelists were there, um, Malcolm Bradbury, Angus Wilson, both very applauded and recognized writers. And they took an interest in me. And they didn't give me any instruction, but they gave me encouragement. Well, this is my question. Do you think that you can actually teach creative writing? You can teach structure. Mm. You can teach semicolon use. You can teach all that stuff. Mm. But really, encouragement, I think, is is the, the key here because it is up to the individual whether you have the creative mind to be able to do it. You can't teach creativity. 
Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. I, I've done a bit of that myself. I, I was at the Iowa workshop in 1997. My sense of it was that the kids who arrived good left good. Right. You know, um, there's, an, there's one other element to this, though, that I think if you have that time that it's been deliberately and institutionally set aside, mm-hmm. it sort of focuses attention and it gives kids a break, a kind of make-or-break year. But encouragement is the vital thing, and I was really lucky to have an audience, a, a readership of two for right. my stories, uh, one in the autumn, one in the summer of the year 1970. And by the time that year was over, I I knew I was going to be a writer. I mean, I knew I was going to spend the rest of my life doing it. Do you think that growing up the way that you did with a, with a soldier as a father and living in Libya and places like that as a young person, but still as an outsider to that community and to that world, and then moving back to Britain as a teen and yet still being an outsider in some ways because you didn't grow up there, gave you... Uh, observational skills, perhaps, that have have played well uh, in terms of, of acting as a through line through your work? Yes, I think there was, there was quite a lot to that. Um, not only was I something of an exile living abroad, but also I was a rather extraordinary school. It took working class boys who had passed um, an entrance exam, quite a tough one, and gave them the sort of education that you'd find in a very good public school. Right. So it was set out in the country, big old uh, Palladian mansion. Uh, but the kids were of a very different sort, and it had a lovely classless feel, which means a lot in Britain, mm-hmm. still does, of r- cocky, can-do, not-bothered uh, kids who all went off to either medical schools or universities or art colleges. Uh, and then I went to a brand new university, which was trying to redraw the map of learning. So I, was, uh, along with uh, an education in literature, I was getting stuff on international relations, philosophy. Uh, I attended a seminar that lasted uh, 12 weeks on quantum mechanics for know-nothing liberal arts graduates. <laughs> so uh, all of these things were, were off the usual beat. Uh, for, for, for many of my writer friends of my generation, who most of them went to Oxford or Cambridge, went uh, on a sort of survey course of English literature from Chaucer to T.S. Eliot or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, these things are really important, actually. Uh, what shapes you, I think, um, not only your reading habits as a child, and I was a passionate reader then, but that mental renaissance that comes with suddenly coming into that self-consciousness of teenagers. Mm-hmm life. These are really important sort of paving blocks to to a writer's existence. Let's talk a little bit about arts education. We've been talking about it in the last segment, your particular brand of it. It feels to me as though arts education is under fire. It seems to me that we are more interested in making sure that children can do math and all that stuff. And that's very important. But I think that a, a very strong arts education and and background teaches you empathy. I think that it teaches you uh, about how other people think. It opens the world up to you. And I think that is just as important as being able to do trigonometry. I think it's important to to have it all if you can manage Mm -hmm. it. Um, And certainly our system, even now, does 
push kids one way or the other and they don't get a, a full rounded education. Um, I think one of the key elements actually um, of a liberal arts humanities education is learning to write. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, uh, in my day, it was important to turn out two or three essays every 10 days, all they, year long. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't happen anymore. That no longer happens, and I think uh, it's it's a great shame to actually uh, read a book, whether it's a history book or uh, a, a work of literature, sit down and have to gather your own thoughts together, organize them into 1,500 words, mm-hmm. and do it on time is a fantastic skill to acquire. And uh, also to prepare for an examination for three hours, uh, do that consistently, uh, is part of, a, I think, uh, a training that in the end everyone catches up with slowly, mm-hmm. whatever they're having to do. And we're all, we all type now. I mean, think back to the early 60s, uh, men strode up and down in their offices dictating letters Absolutely. to women. And it, and it was almost like... a. If you knew how to type, that was rather shameful. It means you weren't on top of your game. So the demands on literacy have, uh, have increased. Uh, and it shocks me that you know people working in the BBC newsroom do not know, apparently 40% said they still felt uneasy with the apostrophe S. Mm-hmm. This is the BBC newsroom, for heaven's yeah. sake. This is something I, I think I knew at the age of eight. They should be setting a standard. Uh, and it takes about a minute to explain yeah. it. So... Um, <laughs> It's, I still think, though, that essay writing uh, should remain the key element of all the humanities, not waiting three months for you to, in panic, mm-hmm. uh, turn in late uh, 5,000 words that you can scrape together. Um, it's the constant need every day to be either in the library researching or at your desk in silence getting down those words and, and learning how to organize your thoughts. It's discipline as well. It teaches discipline to be able to do that. Absolutely. You might have a hangover as many students do, uh, <laughs> but you've still got to turn it out. You might have a hangover as many journalists do. Mm-hmm. You've still got to turn it out. Does it ever feel like a chore to you when you sit down and look at a blank page? Or is it is it just something now after the success and the amount of books and the amount of words that you've placed on those pages? Uh, does it ever feel hard Blank page is not the burden. It's the half-completed page uh, coming down to, you know, mid, mid-novel mid yeah. you know, with maybe 45, 50,000 words behind you uh, and then hitting these bad patches. Your faith can leak away in the whole thing. You can think, I've been doing this for 18 months. Am I going nuts? Is this just, I'm, am I only pushing this forward because I daren't admit to myself that I've wasted my time. That really is is the tough one. I get asked a lot by younger writers what I have to say about writer's block, and I always say this. You've got to get rid of that term. You've got to redefine it. Do not talk of block. Talk of hesitation. <clears throat> it's very important to be able to pull back and say, well, okay, today it's not working. Uh, switch off the screen. Yeah turn away from the keyboard, take up an old-fashioned pen, go to that legal-sized notepad, and just let your thoughts relax onto that page. I think that's uh, unbelievable advice because people seem to think that 
if it's not working in the moment, mm. that the, the gift is gone, I yeah, will yeah. never be able to write anything again. And yeah. what I have always found is when I'm stuck, uh, go for a walk. Yeah. Go to a coffee shop. Do something that disengages you for a moment or yeah. two and then return. Game of tennis, read a book, mm-hmm. whatever. Yep. But, I, but the actual instrument, I think, to have in your hand at that point is a pen. Yep. It's odd how coming away from the screen uh, and just well, what I do is write, here's the chapter, chapter nine. I write the word contains colon. And then I free associate of everything that might or might not be in that chapter. And what I'm putting on the page has no responsibility. As mm-hmm. it were. It's never going to be seen by anyone else. Uh, and that can often get you out of the out of a corner. But yeah, uh, hesitation I think is crucial to all all enterprises. Um, you know, turning back in order to make that run at it again. I'm speaking with Ian McEwen. The book is called Machines Like Me. Available uh, wherever you buy books, whether in brick and mortar stores or Amazon.ca, wherever it is, uh, you can find it there. Um, I want to talk about, and this is kind of a, a bigger question I think that will spill into the next segment. But interesting to hear you talk about this hesitation that could happen midway through a book. Have I been wasting my time? I'm 18 months in and I, I don't know where I'm going. And so I found a quote from you where you say, for me, writing a novel is like beginning an investigation. And does that mean that you start a book without knowing what the end point is and you discover it along the way? I often have a pretty broad idea of where I'm going and what the subject is and more or less where I want to end up. But what I hope for every day is a surprise. Mm -hmm. There's this curious uh, loop between um, your characters and and the events, the plot, that sometimes the, the events shape the character, sometimes the characters are shaping the events. It's a sort of two-way traffic. Very hard to disentangle when our people ask me what what's the more important. Mm-hmm. But also right down at the level of the sentence, which is where we're working novelists all day long, it's, it's that. Uh, you're hoping for some little turn of phrase that will just give you the pleasure you could not have anticipated. Mm-hmm. Or suddenly a character Uh, can offer opportunity or an event can offer an opportunity to the characters. And you might have something by lunchtime that you never would have dreamed of at nine o'clock in the morning. Those are the pleasures, I think, that one thing leads to another to a place you did not expect to be at. This book was uh, begun a few months after uh, the uh, European referendum. And I wonder how much of the general atmosphere around you, there was sort of a malaise around you from my observation anyway, uh, may have filtered into the book? Not a great deal. I was more or less launched. uh, And it became a parallel concern. I very much feel that we're making a big mistake to be leaving the EU. And I've I've written about that in in newspapers and given speeches. Somehow I feel that the the, the sort of alternative world that, that I conjure in this novel um, has something to do with this this sense I have that the present that we live in uh, seems so elf, self-evident, so mm-hmm. obvious. And yet it's a very, very frail construct. We know in our hearts that just behind us in the past that, that decisions have been made, events could be so easily otherwise. Mm-hmm. 
And I guess with the EU matter, we stand uh, at these forking paths and we'll hurry down one sooner or later. We'll either remain or we'll leave. And um, we still don't know. We right? still don't know. And, and, and is that frustrating for you as someone who lives in London? Uh, is that something that that plays on your mind or has it gone on for so long now? Because it seems kind of endless and it doesn't seem like there's going to be any kind of resolution to it anytime soon. Uh, how does it play on you? Well, London voted overwhelmingly to remain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess I'm a Londoner in, in this no, I'm I'm sort of pleased that we haven't left yet mm-hmm. and that the, the door is still open for us to remain because I think economically, culturally, socially, uh, we will thrive much better being part of this trading block. Um, and it's allowed, I think, uh, a great deal of national freedom and difference between – I mean, you could drive from Slovenia mm-hmm. uh, to Denmark uh, and cross uh, much more cultural diversity than if you took a drive across the United States. Mm-hmm. And by the way, there are no borders anymore. I think this is one of the great political achievements of our age. No, but I, I sense the frail construct of the present and how easy it is for things to have just taken a different turn. We would have accepted that as the overwhelming reality mm-hmm. too. So I wanted to play with this possibility of uh, a matter, for example, like the Falklands War. The Argentinians... Uh, invaded and snatched back some islands that had traditionally belonged to Britain and Mrs. Thatcher, whose fortunes were uh, rather in decline at that point, made a very bold decision to send uh, ships 10,000 miles full of soldiers and uh, aircraft carriers down to the South Atlantic to retrieve those islands. To a place virtually nobody had heard of in Britain. I mean, people yeah. might have known, but they it, this was not a going concern. We had even withdrawn our last um, Navy frigate from the area. Uh, so, no, it was not uh, high on our list of priorities. That fleet could so easily have been sunk if the Argentinians had been able to prime their missiles. For that, they needed some French engineers, and Britain managed to prevent them getting down there to do it by you know, by persuasion. But how easily then uh, had that fleet uh, really been damaged? Uh, how easily we can imagine that Mrs. Thatcher's fortunes would have been different? Uh, certainly the Argentinian fascist government of the time would maybe still be in place. Um, And uh, the social reality of Britain would have been entirely different too. And yet we would take it entirely for granted. Mm -hmm. So tweaking these small things, um, and even on a personal level, I often think we're all kind of products of accidents. You know, our mother didn't stay in to wash her hair that night and went to the dance and and father... Decided to do something he didn't usually do and go to a dance. That's right. And then your recombined DNA is the consequence. So there are so many small things that affect affect the entire frail construct of the present. And we are so bad at predicting our own futures, even though we collectively make these futures. We didn't predict the internet. We didn't predict the Berlin Wall coming down. We never knew that we'd be carrying around these little computers in our hands called smartphones on how all these things related to the internet could affect our politics, for example. So um, we stumble into these presents and tweaking events of the past just seemed, uh, I think, a a natural thing for a novelist to do. I wanted my Alan Turing, the great computer scientist who died in 1954, took his own life, to survive and and become an active 
member of, of, of a new digital reality. And the Beatles have reformed. And, you know, there's yeah. all, all yeah. sort of culturally, there's a lot of, of things that happen here that, that are impossible in the real world that we sit in it, today. It's a parlor game we could all play. Mm -hmm. So the Beatles, uh, uh, John Lennon has not been uh, assassinated. Uh, and it's perfectly easy to imagine as the Beatles fell into middle age, they make an absolutely awful album with <laughs> with the London Symphony Orchestra. I don't know if you remember the Moody Blues. But That's the, right, yeah. Yeah. So um, as, as rockers age, they begin to cast their eye over giant uh, Mahler-sized orchestras <laughs> and think, w with knowing very little about uh, classical music, they could do it better. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, they they make one of the most worst. They, they make their worst album ever. I'm speaking with Ian McEwen. We're talking about his new novel, Machines Like Me. It's in bookstores right now. You can pick it up wherever you buy fine books. Uh, the um, sort of reimagining of this world uh, from your imagination could come. Uh, you you could have included any anything in 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 pop culture history and world history. Uh, were there things that you wanted in that just didn't fit? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it was all, it, it, it could be too tempting playing with an alternative reality, an alternative counterfactual past. And my main concern here is what it would be like to deal with uh, a machine consciousness. Mm -hmm. And uh, a young man goes and buys uh, himself the first edition of these completely plausible, highly intelligent... Um, robots that look just like humans, even close up. We're and it helps form his personality, Adam's personality. They help form his personality, uh, and um, Adam, uh, some are called Adam, some are called Eve. Mm. He has a lot of money from his um, sale of his mother's house. Uh, and I'm really interested here uh, because I think we are standing on the edge of a, of a civilizational shift that we are beginning to sh uh, move ethical decisions, moral decisions across to machines. Already with our first um, autonomous automobiles, we're mm -hmm. having to decide whether to protect the driver as against the interests of the pedestrian. Um, machines might be faster and cleverer at us and making a split-second decision on these, but still you really cross the line when you let a machine decide whether to swerve left or right, hit the oncoming truck or take out the, someone on the pavement. So uh, I think the time has come for some, some deep and serious reflection about what artificial consciousness might be like and what, what we should give it, mm -hmm. the better angels of our nature, I hope. Uh, so what then would it be like to live alongside a creature, an artificial human, who was morally superior to you and kinder and more morally consistent. We were talking about sort of the moral implications of this. And I'd suggested that this book, although it 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 flirts around with it, isn't a science fiction novel. This is uh, a book that is, I think, very firmly rooted uh, in the humanities. Well, I mean, I'm not sure I really am troubled by categories and whether this is or is not science fiction. Uh, there's a whole section of science fiction that involves space travel to remote civilizations and planets. But there's another, uh, and to me, more interesting element in science fiction, which is the clash or the or confrontation with future technologies. Mm -hmm. So way back in my past, I read John Wyndham, 
I was very interested in Brave New World, for example, of Aldous Huxley. And there are many, many other. Uh, Blade Runner, for example, as a movie, is set in a very recognizable city. Actually, Toronto today, yeah. almost raining, made me feel... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> looking at the people That's on the right. pavement that looked like uh, something out of Blade Runner. Uh, so that apart, it is the what this technology is going to do to us morally, uh, socially, and so on. And I think that uh, you mentioned people losing jobs to, to robots. Well, this is happening. Uh, I think it's going to happen more. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen not only to people doing jobs in factories, but also to white-collar workers, uh, the professions, legal, medical, whatever. And, and we are now faced with a very interesting issue, uh, which I'd like to raise in the novel, mm -hmm. and that is... Uh, if robots are taking people's jobs, then we better start taxing robots. Um, right. That means taxing the owners of robots. We need to protect not the jobs, we need to protect the workers who are losing their jobs. So many economists, I notice, are now talking of a universal wage. We might get to the point where we stop defining ourselves by work and start defining ourselves by leisure. What is life for? If we could arrive at a universal wage which was high enough to give us a sort of basic level of uh, a high standard of living. So the robots would be doing the work, we would be taxing them, and those taxes would pay for our, for our wage. Then we might find ourselves in the position of the English aristocracy, who never had any trouble not working, <laughs> uh, who defined themselves entirely by their pursuits of hunting and shooting and fishing or playing the harpsichord. Uh, and we must just have to broaden that out. And coming back to what you say about education, a proper, well-founded education would be almost Socratic, getting you back to how to live, how to live without work, mm -hmm. how to live, how to use your 80 years or whatever uh, well. In, in, a, in a meaningful way. In a meaningful yeah. way. And actually, uh, raises a good word here, the pursuit of meaning, mm -hmm. one could almost see as the point of, of existence, not work, but the pursuit of what things mean. Yeah, this is something I think about often. What, you know, it, it, and I'm not even sure that I have ever wrapped my head around this, but, but really what is, what gives us meaning? I work a lot. I do a lot of different things and I, I work a lot. I do this. Uh, I'm a writer. I have a television show and I enjoy it. But each of, within each of those categories, whatever the thing that I'm doing is, and they're all related tangentially at least, I always look at trying to find something that is meaningful within them. Whether it's a conversation with a novelist, I always, or, or with a musician or whoever, I always try and find something that will be a takeaway that could possibly help someone. And, and I think uh, the whole pursuit of one's family relationships, um, friendships, discovering the, the gorgeous planet on which we live, mm -hmm. uh, how things work, how photosynthesis happens, uh, how music affects us. I mean, there, there is an awful lot to do. Uh, for those of a religious uh, persuasion, mm -hmm. there is the whole pursuit of spirituality. Uh, for those of us who just want to look back at the literature that stands behind yeah. us and what we share uh, with remote cultures, travel, there is so much we can be doing that is not called work and we shouldn't be too panicked about robots taking our jobs as long as we can 
avoid mass unemployment, right. which is going to be socially so destructive if 60% of us are not working and feeling sort of left behind. And obsolete, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's what, when I, when I say this is what I think about, I think about uh, what it actually means to be meaningful. Mm. What does it actually mean? Because I'm not sure that I've come up, I'm 56 years old, I'm not sure that I've figured it out, uh, what it is in terms of, of how I interact with the world that is meaningful. Well, I mean, I, I think uh, when someone says, what's the meaning of life? Uh, I think the question is ill-posed, as they say. <laughs> there isn't a single answer to that. Right. Th- there is a vast network of, of things to explore uh, which might or might not bring meaning to your life. You could spend your whole life just studying the keyboard music of, of J.S. Bach. Mm-hmm. That would actually take you into a place in which you find enormous satisfaction. Or you could be a great chef or a great cage fighter. I mean, right. in other words, the actual pursuit, the inquiry itself might be the meaning. Mm. The two might not be distinguishable. So I don't think we should panic about this, but I do think we have to act and think very, very carefully when more and more people are losing their jobs. And it's really interesting to read the economists now talking about how the wealth created by capitalism, um, I mean, capitalism is is a wonderful device for generating wealth. It's a very, very poor device at sharing it. Mm -hmm. If we can find meaningful ways to share the wealth that capital can generate, we could find enormous range of meaning and satisfaction that lies outside work. I'm speaking with Ian McEwen. The new novel is called Machines Like Me, available wherever you buy books. Um, A couple of general questions just to round things off. We're almost done with our our time together. Um, For the writers out there listening, I just have a couple of questions uh, that I'd like to ask. Do you um, revise? How often do you revise? And do you think that revisions are sort of actually the art of writing? Well, I I certainly revise. In fact, I'm sort of always revising. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's part of the attractive fluidity of word processing. Often I start the day looking back over the previous day's work and and fiddling with that. Uh, For all that, though, I think the careful exposition of a first draft is really important. Mm-hmm. That if you do it carelessly, however much you revise it, you never get quite what you want. So that first draft, I still think, remains absolutely vital to the to the life of the whole thing. Do you use readers at all? A number of authors that I know will send their their first draft out to uh, a number of, of people of completely different backgrounds, whatever, uh, just to have a look at it and, and get some feedback? No, I'd, it never occurred to me to do that. Um, <laughs> my wife was in journalism all, all her life, and she worked for the Financial Times, and she founded the Literary Review of The Guardian. Uh, so I'm rather lucky to have someone mm-hmm. uh, to show work to. But I mostly uh, we'll do it when we're on holiday and say, I'd like to read to you for 5,000 words or so. I don't really um, go looking for comments or helpful, instructive remarks. It's really a way of saying, I know what you're up to because you've told me all about it. Mm -hmm. Um, She's now a novelist. Uh, Here's what I'm up to. It's a way of just, you know, usually people working in office and radio or whatever will come back and say, well, this was my day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
it, it's a way of saying th this is what I'm you know, here where here's where I've been for the last three months. So uh, when it's over, when I've got a draft, I always tell my publisher it's a penultimate draft. Yeah, right. So it's, it's, it, there's a long half life, I think, uh, and I'd make changes right up to the point of correcting proofs. I mean, if you see something can be improved, I mean, you'd be a You'd be a fool not to. Well, you have to live with it. Yeah. These things will be sitting on shelves long after we're gone. And yeah. you wanted to be the thing. Do you look back at them, though, as sort of little time capsules from your life? Uh, Certainly a... your first collection of short stories would be different if you wrote them now. I look back now uh, at that little heap, and it seems like a story that I was not quite in charge of, a kind of meta story of my life. And so... Yes, I could never have predicted. When I was writing my last novel, I never would have predicted that I was writing this one. Mm -hmm. I leave a gap. I'm quite good at not writing. I think it's important to, to pause and just become a slightly different person. I used to think that it was like a muscle, that you had to do it all the time, and it would, just, it would build over time. But I have come with age to realize that the downtime in between large writing projects is... Uh, the the best remedy for whatever ails you. Absolutely. And the the novel I'm writing now is not going to help me with the novel I'm <laughs> going to write right. after it. It's a learning process, but a very limited one. Each novel teaches you how to write that novel. And you become an expert in it by the time you're two-thirds of the way through. Right. You're the only one who can write this novel. However bad it is, it's yours. And so there's a secret element, I think, to, to writing a book. Uh, important not to talk about it too much, important mm -hmm. not to share it with others. And that's why I wouldn't want to send an early uh, draft off to, to a stranger and have them say, well, you'll never get... I mean, you, you show a novel to five people, mm -hmm. they'll all come up with different responses. Mm -hmm. When you publish the novel on the same day, it could be acclaimed as a masterpiece in one newspaper and damned to hell in <laughs> another. You must just do what you know and think is right. Mr. McEwen, thank you so much been a real pleasure. My guest in studio has been Ian McEwen. The book is Machines Like Me. You can find it wherever you buy fine books. Uh, thank you for listening. Thanks to Andre on the board, and we'll talk to you again next week.